You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, January 12th, 2011, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. Evan Bernstein. Hello, hello. And the first guest rogue of 2011, the bad astronomer Phil Plate. Phil, welcome back to the SGU. Greetings and felicitations, critical thinkers. Man, we, just, we cannot get rid of this guy, can we? It's no, true. Who, who would want up. to? <laughs> and hello to the rest of you, too, right? Yeah, to everyone else, right? <laughs> right. <but not. laughs> well, if people have to listen to this, okay. Phil, would you like to make any uh, any astrological or astronomical predictions for 2011? Well, what's the difference? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's like uh, cosmology and cosmetology. Basically the same thing. <laughs> That's uh-huh. true. Phil, Phil actually cuts my hair, little known fact. I was going <laughs> to say, they just wash them right out of your hair. That's fine. Yeah, the, the astrological predictions are one thing. But, you know, astronomical predictions, I can say there will be meteor showers. The sun will continue to shine. Somewhere, a supernova will blow up. All right, but if the sun stops shining, we're going to be coming to you for answers. And you can go out on a limb and say there will be sunspots. I don't know. It's but actually been pretty not, weak. Not so, far. so sure about that. Yeah, I want to. There have been there have been a few. We've had some good ones, but not. I don't know. We'll see. It's all going to end in 2012 anyway. We never really fully rebounded from the solar minimum, have we? There have been some pretty big filaments, these prominences, these giant arcs of material that that scream out of the sun and then blow off into space. There have been some really spectacular ones, which yeah. is cool because NASA has a new satellite up, the Solar Dynamics Observatory. And so we've been getting, you know, awesome high-res video of this. But it's still, you know, not quite where I was expecting it uh, by this time in the cycle. Eh, we'll see. The should we be is, afraid? We should always be afraid. Uh, but uh, <laughs> I don't think I, I don't think the sun's going to reach out and do anything except give you a sunburn. Yeah. And yeah. I know how, you know, pale and doughy all, all of us skeptics are, so we should be worried about that. <laughs> we should live in constant fear. Haven't you read Phil's book? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I, yeah. Look, you know, who's going to make money if people aren't afraid? Right. It's true. Oh, that's true. Speaking of which, uh, <laughs> Phil, how is Bad Universe doing? Any updates on uh, possibly more episodes? I haven't heard anything from the network yet. I'm still hoping. Um, the first two have aired in the U.S. I haven't heard of when the third one's going to be scheduled. But if you live in Australia, actually, and I, I, I believe there are some Australian listeners of SGU, uh, January 16th on Sunday, I think it's uh, 7.30, but check your local listings, they'll be showing it, and then they'll show all three episodes uh, on the following Sundays. So, you know, get on, get online, check check your TV schedule, and then you can see me blowing stuff up. That was actually a regular question I got as I was doing talks around Australia and New Zealand. People kept asking me when your show was airing. <laughs> slightly, <laughs> slightly insulting to me. <laughs> but, well, what is your TV show on, Rebecca? Any oh. moment now. Any oh, okay. moment now. But you have to, you have to pay by the minute, though. Oh, dear. <laughs> Well, before we go on to some serious science news, uh, Evan, what is special about today? It was uh, January 13th, actually, tomorrow, uh, 1610, where Galileo discovered Callisto, the fourth satellite of Jupiter. That's my third favorite Galilean satellite. Steve, you know you shouldn't pick favorites. Io, Io's your first, my fourth. I think. My favorite is the one that looks like the Death Star. That's minus. Mimos. That's on Saturn. Yeah, right. I thought it was Mimos. 
I go uh, by the Latin pronunciations, Mimus, but you would know better. That's what I call my grandma, Mimos. Mimos. <laughs> Does she look like the Death Star, too? Oh, I'm confusing myself with Sheldon Cooper again. All right, never oh, mind. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sheldon Evan rocks. Evan, yeah. why, why did you call it a satellite, not just a moon? Well, well uh, <laughs> oh, snap. Because it has not <laughs> they throw you off there, Jay? Of course. <laughs> Because that's what Galileo called them. The words are interchangeable, but that the, the Galilean satellites is just what they're often referred to, the four largest moons of Jupiter. Well, plus when people say moon to me, I only think about our moon. I don't think about the dozens of other moons that you are don't? out there. No. Our moon God, is no. the moon, but it all, all the, the other moon. moons are still moons. All the other moons are cheap knockoffs on <laughs> our moon. Oh, <laughs> come on. Ganymede? Please. Things as big as know. a planet. Well, so is... Uh, <laughs> so is Uranus, Steve. You know? it's, big as- <laughs> it's so cute when you guys talk astronomy. I know. Isn't it, it, Phil? I would love to sit back listening. Huh? This is fun. <laughs> Phil, tell us about the latest exciting exoplanet to be discovered. This is really cool. The newest exoplanet is called Kepler-10b. I like and the name. The, yeah, the name should be a giveaway. Kepler is a satellite that NASA launched, oh dear, uh, last year. Uh, sometime in the past, but not very long ago. It basically stares at one spot in the sky, and it's looking at about 100,000 stars. And what they're seeing, what they were hoping to see, and what they are in fact seeing, is that if uh, planets orbit that star, and the orbits align just right, the planet will pass in front of the star from our view, and it blocks the light. It's like a little tiny solar eclipse. And if you know how big the star is, and, and our models for, for this sort of thing are actually really accurate now, and you know how much the starlight dips, you can actually say how big the planet is. You can calculate it. And if, in fact, you follow up and observe the Doppler shift as that planet orbits the star, the star makes a little orbit around the planet, kind of, sort of. It's, it's not an orbit around the planet. It makes a little circle while the planet makes a big one is one way to think of it. You can measure that as well and get the mass of the planet. So you have its mass and its size, and that tells you a lot about it. And the distance just comes out because you know how long it takes to go around the star. Well, Kepler-10b is the first planet discovered around the star Kepler-10. This is a sun-like star, pretty much. It's got about the same temperature as the sun. It's much older. It's about 11 billion years old, so it's much older than we are. But this planet, 500 and something light years away, orbits the star very close in. It's actually yeah. only a 20th of the distance of Mercury to the sun. So That's we're close. talking a hell? few million miles, not very far at all. It orbits the star in less than a day. I was and say, so this thing is, is, yeah, it's just screaming and it's really hot. The interesting thing about it is that the size of it is about 1.4 times the diameter of the earth. So it's only, you know, a little bit bigger. The the really interesting thing, to me at least, is that it's a lot more massive than the Earth. It's actually pulling on the star much harder than you might think. And so when you add it all up, you can get the density of this thing, and it turns out it's about as dense as iron. It's much more dense than the Earth. The surface gravity of this planet would be about two and a half times the Earth's gravity. So if you stood on it, you'd weigh two and a half what you, times what you do now. Uh, but it's orbiting so close in that even if this thing is made of solid iron, the surface of it's going to be melted. The surface temperature is going to be thousands of degrees. So it's, it's the first sort of molten slash, you know, rocky planet we've found. All these other planets we've been finding have been these super Jupiters, much more massive or about as massive as Jupiter with super thick atmospheres. This thing is just too small and too low mass 
to hold on to an atmosphere when it's that hot. Right. So even though it is not Earth-like in almost any sense of the word, it's our first non-super gaseous planet that's been found. And that's pretty cool. Yeah, so I predicted that by the end of the year, we're going to find an Earth-like planet in the Goldilocks zone. This is not it, but at least it takes us one tiny little step in that direction. We now have found at least a rocky planet. Right. Or even, or even more so than rocky. And or it's molten. Whatever rocky, too, even. <laughs> right. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> that's a great – we should call it Mr. T. That would be an awesome <laughs> name for a planet. <laughs> I pity the fool. <laughs> Phil, when the uh, planet passes in front of the sun, are they able to read uh, anything about the planet in, as far as what it, its makeup is by by the light that we uh, that we get? That's what a co- that's what a cosmetologist does, or a, or a psychic. Actually, my my old boss used to tell a story where she was she was had somebody who uh, who asked her where the cosmetology and psychics department was instead <laughs> of cosmology and physics. Wow. Um, for some Ouch. of these planets, the answer is yes. Some of these super Jupiters are so close to their star that they're actually bleeding off their atmosphere. You can see that. And there are ways of, of doing some pretty fancy techniques to, to figure that kind of stuff out. With this planet, I think they've just discovered it, and there's not a whole lot they can do uh, with Kepler to, to sort of figure out what it's made of. I don't know that for a fact. But there could be follow-up observations. There is this idea that since this thing is so dense, it must have a lot of metals. It must have uh, silicates and iron and different things. And even then, that stuff must boil off the surface of the planet. Yeah. So it's possible that this thing is shrouded in a fog of silicates. It's, it's speculation. It's a little more than speculation, but it's, it's, it's just an idea. And it's something they could look for later uh, when, when our technology gets better, which is a pretty cool idea. So Steve mentioned the Goldilocks zone. Now, say we – is it possible for Kepler to actually detect a planet that's maybe a little bit less massive as – as this one, but you know, maybe 60, 70, 80 million miles away. So, you know, it would tug, it would have be a much gentler tug on the star. Right. Um, so it can, is Kepler able to resolve that? Well, the whole idea of putting Kepler together, the whole idea of building the mission was to look for Earth-like planets. And that means a planet with the mass of the Earth at roughly the same distance from its star as the Earth is, or at least at the distance from its star so that the temperatures are such that you can have liquid water on the surface. Right. For a cooler star, it have to be closer. For a hotter star, it be farther away. Um, the thing is, it's, it, Kepler can only detect planets through this transit method. The planet has to pass in front of the star so that we see that little dip in sunlight. Now, with Kepler-10b, that happens every eight-tenths of a day. So every, you know, what is that, 19 hours, this thing actually uh, passes in front of the star and you get that little dip in light. The farther out the planet is, the, the longer it is between those dips. So with this planet, it was easy to see lots and lots and lots of these little tiny mini eclipses. But if it's a year out, I mean, if it's, if it's far enough out from the star that it takes a year to go around the star, say, we have to wait a year. So you might see a dip like that and then not see another one for a year. So yeah. even if Kepler has seen, and it's entirely possible that Kepler has already seen the transiting dip of an Earth-like planet orbiting a Sun-like star, but they can't confirm it until later. It'll be another year. So by the end of the year, Steve, that might be a little ambitious. They might get a second transit from a candidate star. I think they actually want to see three in total. So it may take two years for us to know that for sure. Then you have to follow up with another telescope, which can hopefully look for that tug. But it's extremely small from an Earth-like planet. And I don't know if our technology's up to it yet. 
Uh, yeah, I don't know what the state of the art is right that's now. That's my concern. It seems that just following the exoplanet reports that we're sort of seeing the low-hanging fruit, either oh, yeah. larger planets a little farther out, you know, medium-sized planets farther out, and then Earth-sized planets only when they're really close to their star, but not Earth-sized and far enough out to be in the habitable zone and not be in a gravitationally locked orbit and all those good things. So, yeah, I'm a little concerned about how long it's really going to take, too. Well, the beauty of this is that contrary to what I would have thought, uh, I don't know, 10 years ago or something like that, a really fertile ground for this are red dwarfs, which are smaller and cooler than the sun and have less gravity. For a planet to be in the habitable zone around one of these guys, it has to be much closer in. And so it actually goes around the star possibly more often than once a year. Uh, and and the transit, it, it, since the, the, the star is smaller, uh, an Earth-sized planet actually blocks more light from the star, so you actually get better right. statistics from it as well. But aren't so those it, planets likely to be tidally locked and therefore show <laughs> one side to their star all the time? Maybe, but it's unclear if that's really a, a life killer or not. If it has an atmosphere, the atmosphere will circulate that heat around. Yeah. And if it has a moon, you know, it's hard to say. And Moons are unlikely. It's, there's a lot of stuff going in here. You're really rolling the dice. But it's interesting. It's fertile ground, and better yet, there are a lot more of those little stars. Uh, they make up the vast majority of the stellar population in the galaxy. So there's lots of them, and they're easier to look at. So it's it's really uh, the, the place to go. Well, let's move on to some non-astronomy items. We'll be coming back to some. Don't worry. We're going to talk about... I know you like to talk about anti-vax issues Phil literally well. has nothing else to offer, though. That's I mean, true. Well, you know, whenever I tweet about anything that's not astronomy, I get people yelling at me. I didn't follow you because of your, your That's your, because your it's the internet. Stuff. Yeah, I know. It's like, how come you don't complain when I post uh, jokes? Eh, what are you going to do? So uh, you guys remember Andrew Wakefield, right? Oh, yeah. Who now? What? Oh, yeah. Yeah. That guy. You mean the former Dr. Andrew Wakefield? Yes. (laughs) The the former (laughs) doctor. Yeah, but at least he has that paper. Oh. This is actually, there's a three-part series published in the British Medical Journal, the BMJ, uh, by Brian Deere. Now, Brian Deere is an investigative journalist who has been spending years investigating Wakefield and his original Lancet paper, which um, alleged this connection between the MMR vaccine and this new syndrome of autism combined with gastrointestinal symptoms. In fact, Brian Deere was one of the first people to break the story that Wakefield was full of it. Um, He worked with an investigative news series in England and was subsequently sued by Andrew Wakefield um, because he, he, yeah, because he exposed him for being a fraud. This series of papers is not about the science. The science has been settled long ago. There is no connection between MMR and autism, that uh, Wakefield's research has not been replicated, that there is this alleged autism and GI syndrome does not exist. The flaws in Wakefield's methods have all been exposed. He's been academically and scientifically discredited. It's, it's the, about how scummy he actually is. <laughs> that's right. This is about <laughs> the fact that not only was he wrong, which is okay, it's okay to be wrong in science, but that he was actually a fraud. Oops. That uh, we, Brian Deere carefully documents, and it's important to note that the BMJ went over all of Deere's evidence and independently verified that it was legitimate. So this, essentially what he did was he went over the uh, medical records of the 12 children that were in the study. 
And he demonstrated that those records do not correlate at all with the case reports of the 12 subjects in, in uh, Wakefield's original study. Uh, for example, Wakefield argued that, I didn't argue, he, he claimed, reported that these children developed their symptoms of autism within days of getting the MMR vaccine. I think on average, about six days delay, but all within, say, two to 14 days. When Brian Deere went over the records, he found that many of the children had symptoms before they got the MMR vaccine, and many of them didn't get their symptoms for many months afterwards. Wakefield essentially fabricated the data to make it seem like it was all within days after the vaccine. He just made it up. Uh, that is scientific fraud. Is that criminal fraud? Well, it depends. No, so just academic fraud is not necessarily criminal unless there's a law somewhere, you know, in the, wherever you are that says that it is. But it gets better than that. So in the, the part two of this study, which was not available for our show last week, which is why it's good that we waited, Brian Deere goes over uh, the money trail. He follows the money. So he, in this article, which we'll link to both of these, he outlines Andrew Wakefield's master plan for making millions of dollars off of this fraudulent study. Part of this was known back when Brian Deere made his initial investigation of Andrew Wakefield. And unfortunately, it just didn't get the publicity that it should have. But way back then, um, Brian Deere uncovered this fact that Andrew Wakefield had Previously, previous to his research, he had developed a patent for an alternative to the MMR vaccine yeah. and uh, then engaged in this fear mongering that would allow him to reap a lot of money from sales of his patent. And also, uh, Brian Deard un uncovered the fact that Wakefield was receiving a lot of money from people with a vested interest in creating this sort of fear-mongering atmosphere around the MMR. Right. Um, so it's fantastic that now I, I, I think that what's been done now is is just um, you know they've crossed all their T's, dot all their eyes, and whatnot, and um, publishing it in the in the BMJ as part of the series has finally gotten it the recognition that it deserves. And I think it's really important because one of the things that's often thrown in our faces whenever we try to um, promote vaccines is that we're in the pocket of big pharma. Follow the money. Follow the money. Surely these people are getting a big uh -huh. check from big pharma, and that's why they're saying what they're saying. The same people who keep saying this are ignoring the fact that when you follow the money with Andrew Wakefield – you are led down this rabbit hole that that clearly shows he is getting he was getting vast amounts of money in order to create this false panic. Yeah, he had actual conflicts of interest. That was the actual first uh, problem to come up, as you said, Rebecca, with the Lancet paper, and that caused most of the co-authors to back out. Was the fact that Wakefield had undisclosed conflicts of interest, and then it wasn't until years later that the Lancet actually withdrew the paper. Uh, but and I did learn some new details. From, from Brian Deere's latest article that I didn't know, and I've been following this for years. So as you said, Wakefield was paid about a half a million pounds, you know, almost you know, more than a million dollars, basically, uh, by lawyers in order to make a case against MMR. 
he had patents for a single valent measles vaccine. So, of course, he, when you when you hear Wakefield's uh, statements to the press, it was all this trivalent vaccine is the problem. It's the combination vaccine that's the problem. That's because he had the single measles vaccine in his pocket, and he was hoping to make millions off of that. But what I didn't know that additionally he had you know licensing agreements with the with the hospital that he was working at for a test for Crohn's disease, which he alleged was associated with autism, and he was expecting in his prospectus, which Brian Deere you know, revealed, to make tens of millions of pounds just from creating a panic and having you know, all these people getting tested for Crohn's disease, which is you know, the GI disorder. So and and it was the details are just incredible how they had this whole plan to make all this money, and what killed it initially. Uh, so everyone, you know, the, the hospital was backing Wakefield. Everyone was happy with it. What killed it was a new physician came into the hospital, uh, you know, who was in charge, and he basically said. You know, this all seems a little premature based upon this one little case series that's a little thin. How about doing some follow-up research before we go whole hog for all of this this you know, big business making millions of pounds? And Wakefield was being um, off-putting and delaying and saying, well, why do we really need to do that? And then he agreed to do it, but just never did it. He just never did the follow-up research. And yeah, he was he was offered the funding to do that research, too. Yes. He literally had nothing to lose, right. and yet oh, for some reason failed to do he it. He had yeah. everything to lose. I mean, well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I should yeah, say, if if his if his results were valid, he had nothing to lose. Right, right. right. But of course, he, you know, again, Brian Deere makes the inference that he didn't do that because he knew that a larger, carefully controlled study probably wouldn't give the results he was hoping for because he completely fabricated the original case series, and so that's what that's what brought the deal down. You know, he eventually got cut, um, let go from that hospital. He never had an academic position since then. And then he just became a darling of the anti-vax community and started defending himself with all these conspiracy theories. But the bottom line is he initially fell from his academic position because he didn't do the research and he refused to follow up in the, the basic responsible way that any legitimate researcher would do. Hey, Steve, he, I think he actually... Um said that uh, he didn't want to do the bigger study because it, it would impact his academic freedom. Was that his quote? Uh, that's lame. I mean, what does he ridiculous. mean? What did, what did he even mean by He's saying just that? throwing that term around because it sounds good. I mean, oh, he, man. He, didn't, he didn't have a point to make. You can't, bullshit, you can't bullshit your way out of things like that. When people, you know, academics will see you coming a, a mile away. When you're, you know, they're just saying, listen, just show us some good, solid research. All the hand-waving, special pleading nonsense that the cranks always do – Academics are not impressed by that. I mean, we just, you know what I mean? It's just, it doesn't work. And they're really not impressed by fraud. And even a layperson could see that the, you know, his initial study, it was what, eight kids 12, or something? 12, 12. 12. I mean, you know, any, even a layperson could look at that and say, well, yeah, obviously you'd want to do something with a few more kids, right? <laughs> but no, no, that would Boy. impact his academic. The thing freedom. I'm surprised about is that. Such a huge deal was made out of a study with 12 kids. Yeah. That, that seemingly, um, you know, on the surface, sure, he made these claims. They seem to be um, serious and definitely something to be looked into. But the fact that they didn't do a follow-up study or, or definitely a study with more people or how about just a different group of people doing another study to ver verify and validate – 
because it appeared in the Lancet, Jay. That was the big thing. Yeah. Well, that's because, you know, we see this again and again. Science doesn't convince people. What convinces people are is good PR and a charismatic leader. And, you know, we talk about this in terms of cults all the time. But I, I think that Wakefield is a very good example of a charismatic leader. It, it doesn't matter if the facts are on his side. He's a very likable, charming, convincing person when he's presenting the sort of things that you want to hear. If you're a parent of a kid with autism and you're desperate for answers, then he knows he's got what he, what you need, you know, and he was willing to sell that at, at any price. And it worked out quite well for yeah, him. And ben Goldacre pointed out that in the UK... Uh, where Ben Goldacre is, he's the author of the Bad of Bad Science book and and website. He he commented to me that yeah, the, his uh, criticism of the media in the UK was that they they sort of built this case against MMR based upon Wakefield's charisma and his reputation, and then they turned it around when when Wakefield personally was was falling. Then they acted as if that's what disproves the link between MMR and vaccines. And Go- and Goldacre was saying, well, you know, it's actually about the science. It's not about the personal rise and fall of this one man. And what's interesting is I don't I, actually I just got sent this link. And I didn't have time to send it to you guys, but there's an article in the Guardian about uh, a little scuffle that Brian Deere is having with Goldacre and Paul Offit and some of the scientists, and that essentially it's the difference between the relative contribution of the investigative journalism about the fraudulent aspects of, of Andrew Wakefield in terms of that knocking down the MMR scare versus the follow-up science, which showed that there was no link between MMR and autism, right. which is interesting. I think it's kind of a pointless fight. It's like, well, it was both, right? It was fraudulent and wrong. And, and I think that's, it's, it's legitimate to make both those points. The science contributed to the whole picture coming out. Deere's investigations contributed to the whole picture coming out. And I, I, I don't know. I think that they, this article is trying to make something out of nothing, as it were. I got the same impression. I have a couple of points. One, it took over 10 years for someone like Brian Deere to to do their study and to validate something that very obviously to me seems like it should have been done very very a very long time ago. Yeah. That's number 1. Number 2, you know, I don't want to give the Lancet a, a break here. I think that they they published some, they published a very very serious piece of research that did an enormous amount of damage. And, um, you know, I do believe that, that um, they should have been more rigorous. I mean, they, they yeah. shouldn't just publish anything, you know, and look at what happened here, guys. Children are dead. People are dead because of this. Yeah, but Jay, don't forget, there's also the idea that, I mean, we're talking in, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. I don't think anybody could have ever possibly predicted the fallout of that study. You know, as bad as it was, maybe they shouldn't have even published it at all, but nobody could have, looked, could have seen this in the crystal ball. This is such an anomaly. Well, nobody could have known that this one little crappy study was going to be used by essentially a con artist in order to, you know, create a, fe- a fear, a, p- a mass panic that he was then going to exploit in order to sell his own wares. Right? That's essentially what Brian Deere is documenting. Right. But what what where the Lancet really needs to be criticized though is why did they publish? such a flimsy little case series it really wasn't a, a good piece of science it was a, it was if if there were no fraud if it were if it were true and legitimate even if it were wrong 
then that's the kind of preliminary research that gets published in some throwaway journal somewhere, not the Lancet. That was the real question. Mm. And it seems like they did it probably because of the implications, uh, because it's, it's, you know, it, it will become a, a very a highly visible study. They should have known. They should have known. Did they vet it at all? Well, it was peer-reviewed, but peer review is not a process that will reveal fraud. Right, and they've never replicated this. They've tried to over and over again, never been able to replicate his results. So I think the lesson here for The Lancet or any journal, but especially medical journals, is don't publish crap science. How's that? (laughs) I I agree. I want to make three, three quick points here. One is that the money that we're talking about here is not even just millions of dollars. It was estimated at hundreds of millions of dollars over several years. So it's not chump change. So even if even if the anti-vaxxers are saying, "Oh, Paul Offit's in the pocket of big pharma," uh, you know, I don't think he's making hundreds of millions. Even if that claim had held any water, which it doesn't. Second, uh, there's a book that just came out by Seth Mnookin called "The Panic Virus." Yeah, and I just happened to finish it. It is really good and and details this sort of stuff quite well. Uh, and so I, I recommend uh, people read that. And the third thing is, I'm going to plug a website here called Immunize for Good. If you look it up. I've been writing about it on my blog. It's it's done by a Colorado group. Uh, it's got all sorts of really great information about vaccinations, including a fact or fiction section, which pretty much debunks all the ridiculous anti-vax claims. So if you're out there, you're a skeptic, you're listening to this podcast, you have friends or family or whatever, and they have infants or they're pregnant and they're they're talking about this or whatever, send them to immunize for good and it will... It'll do a lot of good. You could you could possibly save a life here. Let's go on to another story about a man with dubious intentions. This is a, a creationist teacher who was recently fired. This is the freshwater case. Rebecca, you're going to tell us about this. Yeah, yeah. You, I know what our listeners are going to be thinking as I recount this. You're going to get a severe case of deja vu. So just the All other day, a, a science teacher in Ohio named John Freshwater was fired for teaching young earth creationism in the classroom and also for branding his students with a Christian cross symbol. Now, wait, we're not talking about, like, like branding them in the sense of, like, branding them outcasts, right? Or ta- saying that they are no, he beyond l- God's... Literally, know, he literally branded children using... Like a cattle, right? Using a Tesla coil, um, he branded kids with a cross, which don't get me wrong. I mean, branding kids using a Tesla coil in science class, that's pretty awesome. If I had a science teacher who did that in high school, I'd probably be down with it. Um, so long as I could choose the symbol, you know, um, branding kids with a cross, um, not so cool. Uh, and, and also, yes, probably illegal. Um, definitely illegal. It, it, did the kids consent to that? Um, because you know, if they it's, didn't, it, it, it's assault, right? Well, yeah. I mean, it's it's difficult to say. I mean, it'd be difficult to convince a kid to hold out his arm. You know, the you can imagine sort of how it might go yeah. down if uh, you know he's got the Tesla coil running. He's, he picks a willing sheeple from the audience to come up. Uh, you know, so or just a you know a trusting kid who yeah. trusts the science teacher not to uh, permanently scar him. And yeah, bam, he's got a, a cross on the kid's arm. And it wasn't um, 
it obviously wasn't fully consensual because the kids ended up complaining and that's sort of what yeah. did this guy in. Um, and I should mention that it's not a permanent scar. It's like a temporary sort of raised red thing. And that's why I feel comfortable making a joke about how it would yeah. be awesome if my science teacher did that. Um, because I had a science teacher in high school let us uh, write our names in alcohol and then light it on fire. Which is awesome. Against the rules, but what, awesome. What part of your body? Um, right. uh, is that a so, waste of alcohol? So yeah, you might think, you know, didn't didn't I already hear this story approximately two years ago? I think we might have even covered it on SGU, but I can't remember back that far. But the answer is yes, you did hear that. Because this happened back in 2008. Uh, the it, it had actually been going on for quite some time. Many teachers in the school had complained about this guy teaching young earth creationism, teaching things like homosexuals um, are sinners, uh, you know, homosexuality in general is a sin and should be shunned, evolution is a myth, things like that. Teachers had complained for quite a long time. But finally, a kid comes home branded with a cross and goes to his parents and the parents complain. The school board, after much deliberation, decides to fire him back in 2008. But the teachers, uh, any teacher who was fired has the ability to appeal. Freshwater appealed and managed to keep it going for two years, which uh, basically caused the school board to have to pay nearly a million dollars, something like around $900,000, um, most of which was legal fees, just to fire this guy. Yeah. Um, you know, was someone this a public who, school? Yes, yeah. I believe so. Then we're yeah. done. This is what yeah. kills me. This is a violation of uh, the, uh, oh yeah, the First Amendment of the Constitution. <laughs> that has been established. There's precedent for this. You teach creationism in class, it's religion, and you're fired. Phil, you just said that like Bill Cosby. <laughs> <laughs> you got to fire the guy in the <laughs> He made a really pathetic defense of himself, saying that yes, he branded students, but it was an X, not a cross. Oh, and come you on. know, that was his defense, really. It's yeah, a that was his product. defense. It's a math class. And, <laughs> yeah, because the X is is so you know full of of meaning. It's such an icon, you know. And and, could, and they look nothing alike. It's not. It wasn't. He wasn't doing a plus sign. It was obviously a cross with one long line. There are pictures of it online because photos were submitted as part of you know the um, the prosecution. For big, because it actually did um, went to the courts. The the parents ended up suing over it, and all of this was submitted as evidence. Yeah. There's really little to be said in defense of this man, and uh, I don't think he had any defense in terms of actually teaching young Earth creationism. He was quite open about it, and like I said, for something like ten years prior, teachers had been um, steadily complaining about him. The he, I, I believe, he taught eighth grade science. The ninth grade science teacher complained quite often that every year this person would have to reteach these kids basic scientific facts about evolution because they were all the children coming in had no idea of anything beyond basic biblical creationism. Um, ten years or so this was going on and they couldn't just fire the guy. So finally, finally, it is done after two years of fighting and $900,000 in legal fees, this guy has been fired. Wow. This is why it's probably a good idea for me to homeschool my kids because if some idiot wrapped his head around m one of my kids with this BS, I would literally get myself thrown in jail for what I would do. <laughs> could you imagine if your kid came home 
with some type of what is it like? Was it an electrical burn? I mean, what what would happen to yeah. you? If, it was like a yeah. raised red, sort like a red welt, basically. Could you imagine? Like I I I just can't imagine myself driving to that guy's house fast enough to take care of it, just like that. No, but this guy still has appeals left to him if he chooses to, to go for it. Now it's just abusive. I mean, the guy basically sucked $900,000 out of the public school system yeah. just to deal with his nonsense, and he could take it further if he decides to be even more of a jackass than he's already been. Do you know how many copies of, of Pandas and People that would buy? <laughs> <laughs> oh, so how many trips to the Creationist Museum that could fund? I mean, come on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, there has to be a mechanism to more efficiently fire people. Yeah, I mean, you want to protect teachers who, you know, are, are good teachers who might be going, like, you know, I, I think I've mentioned in the past that I have a really good friend who's a science, and a seventh grade science teacher, and he's a skeptic, and he gets a lot of flack from parents and the administration for doing things like having a critical thinking section um, as part of his curriculum, where he brings in a Ouija board, and every year, parents have, like, the kids have to go home with letters and um, get them signed by parents to say that they're allowed to play with an Ouija board and every year there's at least one kid usually more who have to go to the library during that period because Ouija boards are satanic and so like my friend is constantly fighting against the administration in order to have a curriculum that's you know science focused and uh, free of mythology interestingly the the other side the creationists are trying to play the you know the academic freedom or the religious freedom card on in these cases too they're trying to go after science teachers who are teaching evolution but are also saying things like the creation story in the bible is a myth right so if they if they sort of step over that line they could find themselves in the same situation where they're being fired you know for crossing that the line of uh, teaching religion in the public school system and I do think there's some legitimacy to that. I don't I don't I think that science teachers shouldn't be in the position of telling their students that their religious faith is wrong or a myth or something. Just stick to the science. They could the, impl- the implication may be in fact that your creationist creation beliefs are are in fact not science. They're not scientific. You know, draw whatever conclusion draw whatever conclusion you can from that. I don't, but, I don't necessarily agree. Let's let me give you a for instance. Uh, let's say that a, a student in the class who is being taught creation science at home asks, yeah. well, what about Adam and Eve? And what about the, the Bible stories? What about that? And is the teacher supposed to give him a really light or incredibly edited you know, answer that isn't stepping on any toes? Or can the teacher say something along the lines of, you know, there's no scientific basis for any of those stories. And in the scientific community, we don't represent those. That, but what you just said is fine. Yeah, Jay. I was just about to mention that because because I have I have a few um, I, I actually know a few science teachers who are who have dealt with this exact problem because every time they teach evolution this comes up the students are naturally curious because they've heard about this teaching both sides and they they've heard that their faith can't uh, possibly square with the science that they're being taught and so they ask these questions and so it does come up in the natural course of, of teaching on I think a fairly regular basis and that's just it we do have to protect teachers for speaking you know to students for 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 telling them the 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 scientific truth as we know it yeah right 
which makes you wonder how much of this particular firing had to do with the physical damage that was being inflicted on the children. I bet you it was a good part of it. Absolutely. If this thing stood only on, on the merits of what he was teaching and you know science versus creationism, I'm not sure this guy would have been fired. Well, there's certainly a lot of science teachers teaching creationism you know, in their in their science class, and they're not getting fired. But that depends on you know the school system that they're in. Uh, so I agree that that was a huge part of it. But to, to clarify, because, again, I don't want to get a million emails on this. I know this can be contentious, but it's, it's important that my position be made absolutely clear. What you said, Jay, and what you're saying, Rebecca, is perfectly fine. It's okay to say this is not science, that this is not part of our scientific understanding of the history of the world and the origin of life. But I, I think there is a line somewhere. I don't think science teachers should be telling students that they shouldn't have a particular faith or that their faith is just don't talk about their faith. Just talk about the science. Again, even though I don't think they should be held accountable for the implications that might be drawn from that, as long as they're just talking about the science. It is messy, and unfortunately, they're going to exploit the system as best they can, and they'll do it again. And that's why we're here. We're, you know, thank you. For what it's worth. <laughs> Thank you. Good night. Awesome. Um, yeah, except for we didn't really help out the school board at all because there's still a million dollars in two years. That's out, not. Look, so. don't get particular well, now. Okay, they're barking up the wrong tree if they're looking yeah. to recoup that they money. They should. Here. They should have called us two years ago. That's right. <laughs> I think they did. Well, we we can help out with all that money we get from Big Farmer, right, Steve? How are those oh, yeah. babies doing, yeah. by the way? Just forward the check. <laughs> uh, before we leave the news items, Phil, give us a quick story on this. On Black your childhood. Hole. What was it like to grow up out there? Huh? What? <laughs> what a <laughs> stupid joke. Non sequitur. Non -sequitur. <laughs> I want to learn more about Phil Plate, the man. You know what I mean? Well, that, Did Jay yeah. just black okay. out? The man. <laughs> My wife would laugh at you calling me that, but okay. <laughs> or or wow. you could tell us about black holes, which happens to be your scientific area of expertise. Uh... Yeah, I, I think that's that's not terribly unfair to call it that. I, I've studied them quite a bit, although not uh, not when I was doing research, but uh, afterwards when I was doing education and public outreach, I worked on a couple of satellites that studied uh, black holes a lot. And there have been in the news a lot of black hole stuff and a uh, couple of interesting stories. I think the most interesting one is that a, a relatively nearby dwarf galaxy called Hanais 210 uh, is, is, uh, it's really actually, it's pretty dinky. It's only about 3,000 light years across. And, uh, the Milky Way is 100,000 light years across. So this is pretty small. And yet it's really active. There's a lot of stuff going on in it. And what they found is that near the center of this thing is a supermassive black hole. And that's, that's a pretty big surprise. We know that there are these black holes in the centers of big galaxies like us and Andromeda and those kind of guys. And some smaller galaxies have them as well, but not that many. But even the ones when, when we see them in these little galaxies, those little galaxies are usually pretty well organized. This one's a mess. It's irregular. It looks like a, a paint blot or something like that. And uh, it's, it's relatively close by. It's about 30 million light years away. As galaxies go, that's pretty close. And it turns out because it's small, it has to be close or else we wouldn't be able to see it at all. Uh, and uh, this one has a supermassive black hole about a million times the mass of the sun. It's not exactly well known how massive it is, but that's close. And that's a quarter the size of our black hole for a galaxy, mind you, that is much, much, much larger. And Andromeda, yeah. which is a galaxy essentially the same size as the Milky Way, uh, it actually has a, a black hole in the center that's 140 million solar masses. So galaxies our size can have black holes of all different masses, but it's really weird to see one 
in a galaxy this small. And really, nobody knows how it got there and how it got so big. It's an interesting little mystery. I know. I know how it happened. Oh, here we go. Then, then, then it's, it's Andrew solved. Wakefield's fault. <laughs> no, my, my theory is that um, the supermassive black hole – your yes. hypothesis. My hypothesis, yes. <laughs> Way to keep well, it in mind, Phil. It's no, I've developed this pretty far. I'd call it a theory. Um, <laughs> my, <laughs> my, uh, yeah, my quick, quickie little idea is that this black hole, it got, it, the, the galaxy originally had a tiny black hole, um, but it got really big because it merged with another supermassive black hole that was ejected from another galaxy. Bob, why do you hate America? Can black holes merge? <laughs> she, yeah. They can merge. Now, there's actually some precedents for this. There was some – I've read some articles about uh, idea, uh, theories or hypotheses of black holes being ejected from other, uh, other, other galaxies. The Chandra X-ray satellite, I think, spotted one that they think uh, was possibly ejected. I know, I know it's probably baloney, but I'm just throwing that out there. <laughs> well, it is possible. Uh, you know, when, when two galaxies collide, and we see this all the time, uh, it's possible that the, the black holes in the centers of the two galaxies – uh, depending on the circumstances, usually the galaxies will pass through each other. Sometimes they merge. If they merge, the black holes can orbit each other and eventually merge. But if there's a, a, a lot of junk around it, massive clouds of gas and dust and stuff, these guys can actually weigh as much as the black holes. They're just much, much, much bigger. Mm. And if you do that, you can toss around a lot of stuff. You need, you need massive objects and the, and the, the orbital mechanics gets really complicated, but you can kick something out of a system when that happens, when you have more than two things interacting. So yeah, you can eject a supermassive black hole from a galaxy. I don't imagine it happens very often. Right. However, you know, there's the whole universe for this thing to be inside of. The odds of it being inside a little dinky galaxy like this, which doesn't have a prayer of capturing it, uh, would be really, really low. Right. Uh, it, it's the same sort of thing with moons in the solar system and pl even planets. Yeah. They can get ejected. Uh, but it's really, really hard to actually capture an mm -hmm. object. The but amount of energy yeah, you have to lose is huge. How yeah, old is this galaxy? It's a big galaxy. I don't know. That's a good universe. question. I don't know. Um, it's hard to actually well, get could a date the age on something Could like the age this. of it have something to do with its, st its structure? It could be a very old galaxy that just something happened to it recently. I'm not sure. I don't know that much about this galaxy. There were a lot of papers out. It's been studied for a while because it is a star-forming galaxy. It, a lot of these little dwarf guys do crank out uh, a lot of stars. And, and honestly, 30 million light years, this thing would be invisible if it if it weren't uh, this bright, if it weren't cranking out these stars. So people have been studying it. It'll be interesting to see uh, what else can be determined about this thing. I mean, there's the evidence for it being a black hole is, is pretty convincing. It's blasting out x-rays. There are radio waves coming from either side of, of whatever this object is, which is what you expect when beams of material are screaming out of the black hole, well, near the black hole, and, and slamming into material in the galaxy. So looking at it, uh, yeah, I, you know, I, I think a, a supermassive black hole is a pretty good, pretty good deal. But how it got there, how it got so big when the galaxy is so small is a pretty interesting question. Evan, get us up to date on Who's That Noisy? Yeah, why don't we play last week's Who's That Noisy? Here we go. Yeah, let's... No, 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 no! None of these books have a cure! Ugh, there has to be a real reason for this! An illness? An allergy? A curse! I said a real reason. Something that points to something real. How about this one? Supernaturals? Spike, the word supernatural refers to things like ghosts and spirits and zombies, which are as make-believe as curses. Okay. Except the zombies. So who is that noisy? I know who it is. All right, Rebecca. 
It's My Little Pony is only like the best toy ever. That's right. Right? Exactly. Right? <laughs> that is right. That's exactly yeah. correct. I had tons of My Little Ponies as a kid, and that's what made me a skeptic today. I'm not shocked not, by not that actually, n- Not actually true, but I did have a ton of My Little Ponies. There was a My Little Ponies like cartoon? Oh, the, it's yeah. Sev- several, Jay. There have been several. <laughs> it used to come on right after Gummy Bears. Wait, Gummy Bears was a show? What is what? this? Come on, Gummy Bears, bouncing here and there. You no, just, just made me. that up. No, I swear to God. Is it really like, like, bouncing here and there and everywhere. So what were they talking about in that little clip? Oh, <laughs> you know, stuff and things <laughs> with the stuff. Basically, the, the gummy bears were talking about how not to get eaten. No, <laughs> no. they're My Little Ponies. Look, oh, I did. I, I did not bears. watch. I did not watch the entire episode. But the moral <laughs> of the story was that the uh, solution was in the uh, you know th- that going to look for a solution to a problem using a paranormal book uh, is not a good thing to do. And uh, thank you, t- by the way, to uh, Adam from the Reality Check podcast, who uh, brought that to our attention. Oh, cool. Hey, Adam. Thanks, Adam. Who, did you, anybody Adam. guess it right? Abs- yeah, absolutely. Someone did get it right. I'm almost and, and her name was uh, Rebecca, Rebecca Watson. <laughs> <laughs> His name. <Excuse> me. <laughs> Wolper Tinger from the message boards was the only one to guess correctly. He should but, be ashamed of himself. He should see he, a doctor about that. Even got the name of the pony, Twilight Sparkle. Oh, oh boy! No, that's I'm big, sorry. Uh, wow. Twilight Sparkle? Can they sue? You like Twilight Sparkle? <laughs> can they sue Stephanie Sparkle? Twilight Sparkly Vampire. So, so basically, Evan, what you're saying is, Walper Tinger, wherever he is right now, or might she, yeah. be wearing a "I Love My Pony" T-shirt, whatever that is. It, it, the T-shirt actually reads, "Everything I learned about skepticism, I learned from My Little Pony." Oh, That's God. so true. That's ridiculous because honestly, everybody knows Hello Kitty's a lot better. Mm, what? <laughs> Get out of here. Is, is Hello Kitty very skeptical? No, Hello Kitty is just a cheap marketing ploy. I'll take four. I, well, well I've been ponies. put in my place. My, <laughs> <laughs> my Little Ponies had content and stuff. Uh, Evan, stuff. Evan, what do you got for this week? This week's Who's That Noisy? No. It's David after dentist. Evan, look, man. Say that was for you. No, no window lickers. Okay, it's it's Keisha without auto tuning. Oh. Uh, you know, guys, That's a good something guess. really weird and profound just happened to me. Yeah. Um, I think I have finally merged with the internet <laughs> because I know, really? exac- I know exactly what that is. And Are you lawnmower I- man? Is that what just happened? <laughs> I think I am. <laughs> <laughs> more, more metrosexual man. <laughs> I, I, I do predict that one of our listeners, at least one of our listeners, is going to get this correct. So, Thanks, Evan. Let's go on to a couple of your questions and emails. This one, by coincidence... Total cosmic coincidence. This was not planned. Anyway, listener Tom Kilworth sent in a question addressed to us and Dr. Plate. He must have psychically known, Phil, that you were going to be on the show this week. I was going to say, I didn't know Phil's dad was a doctor. Wow. Somebody give him a million dollars. Tom writes, (laughs) nice try. 
One of my not-so-skeptical friends linked me to this video featuring astronomer Nassim Haramein talking about his models of planetary and solar activity. It sounds pretty bunk to me, but his models are interesting. This is the video I was shown. We'll give you the link. What do you guys think of this? Might be an interesting topic for the podcast, perhaps. Oh, yeah. Phil, I, I feel I, I know you uh, lost a few brain cells watching this video. Yeah, I'm, I'm a little ticked that you made me watch that. Uh, because that's, yeah. you know, people say that's 10 minutes. I'm never getting back. It's worse than that. It's actually like an entire section of my brain that uh, atrophied and melted out of my ear after watching that. But so didn't thank it remind you. you of Kepler and the, you know, and the shapes and the planets and all that? Didn't it remind you of that story a little bit? Yes. He reminded me of <laughs> Neil Adams. That's who he reminded me. Of. Ooh. That's not yeah. Good. This. Wow. I mean, it's it's hard to actually describe or understand a place to start or find any sort of grip on the amount of weirdness that this video has in it. I mean, he, he just, he just says stuff and it doesn't matter what he's saying. He just says it. Uh, he's talking about watching, uh, Shoemaker Levy 9, the comet hitting Jupiter back in 94. And he says the community said that comet might not be visible from the earth. And it's like, no, actually, most astronomers thought it would. And there were a few that said it might not. We weren't sure. And, and so that's how science works. And then they, the narrator was saying, flames emerged from the impact point. Kind of sort of implying that, you know, you could see this with a small telescope, which isn't true. Uh, it, 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 oh, his whole thing, you know, I'm watching this. And he's talking about the tetrahedron dictating the energy about to happen inside the Earth and all this stuff or inside Jupiter. And I'm thinking tetrahedrons... Uh, certain la specific latitudes, he's talking about Hoagland. Yes. And five yes, and seconds later, this is the theory of consultant to NASA's Richard C. Hoagland. And Hoagland. Thought, Hoagland. Hoagland. <laughs> um, if you want to know everything you need to know about Hoagland, always be funny. go to my website. Go to badastronomy.com. Yeah, if you go there, you'll go to my blog, actually. But if you search on the web and look up my name and his name, you'll, you'll, you'll see what I've written about him. Um, <laughs> It's like what it was at Linus Pauling who said this wasn't even wrong. It's it's so bad it's not even wrong. Have you guys ever gone to the website crank.net? No. It, no. It's been around forever and I mean I remember reading it when I was in grad school. So we're talking, you know, 1990s here. And uh he would he would take these pseudoscience websites and and grade them. He would he would he would write sort of a synopsis of them and then grade them as cranky, crankiest, and elucid. And <laughs> elucid being sort of the skeptical equivalent of four hundred four reality not found. And, and this I is hate exactly that. what that awesome. is. You can watch this guy giving talks about the pyramids and the Egyptians, and he just says stuff. It doesn't matter if it's right or wrong, and mostly wrong. And, you know, people are just going to run away with this. You know, geologists don't like to talk about this fact of the pyramids. And it's like, yeah, because, you know, it's it's made up silliness. Of course they don't talk about it. They have science to do, you know. Yeah. Well, this guy is clearly steeped in the alternative history, alternative literature. Yeah. You know, a lot of this – I watched his Egypt one too just to get a, a more, you know, background on this guy. And, you know, it, it wasn't his own unique nonsense. It was stuff that he's just – reading in other people's nonsense like the fact that there are no hieroglyphics that that reference the building of the pyramids well that's wrong yeah that is wrong uh, yeah uh, again there's sort of this neil adams stuff where he's totally shooting from the hip totally going off the cuff very anti-intellectual very anti-scholarship and he would say things like 
oh, there's like so many, uh, more than a million or so stones in the pyramid. They're, they all would have to have been placed within this very, you know, minute um, amount of error. You know, you have to, so any tiny error would be magnified millions of times. So it had to be more precise than we can even manage today. That's, right. just, that's just not true. Mm-hmm. And I remember reading that when I was a kid. In the UFO books. Yeah, so that's where he's getting it from. Yeah. He's reading so, all this yeah. crap, and he's pretty, you know, he it, thinks he's it, doing science. At least Hoagland yeah. has the cojones to make up his own crap, <laughs> and he does just make it up wholesale. Uh, this guy is borrowing crap from everybody else and, and repackaging it. You know, and I, I think I found his magnum opus. I found a YouTube of this guy from the early 2000s where he's talking about a comet that passed through the solar system. Now, this comet, he says over and over, was twice the size of Jupiter. Right. Okay? Wow. Twice the size of Jupiter. Oh, I know. I, I know. I'm sure he got it from James McCanny. McCanny is this guy who says that comets are hot and they actually gain mass and they don't lose it. There's no water in comets. He, wow, he, it's he, like and, it's like it's more like an anti-comet than a comet. Yeah, well, <laughs> he was he was kind of a uh, for a short time. McCanny was the darling of the late night uh, uh, crank radio shows and uh, Art Bell. Gotcha, coast to coast. I you know I, I, I guess he was on coast to coast. I don't know, but I heard him a lot of times on these other radio shows, paranoid conspiracy theory shows, and I basically ripped him to shreds on my website. I wasn't going to, but he kept getting airtime, and he was tying the stuff into Planet X. And all this stuff. And he said, you know, this comet, here's a picture of this comet. Look, it's bigger than Jupiter. And it's like, no, the comet is actually about 20 miles across. The gas surrounding it, the, the, the ice that makes up a comet as it gets near the sun turns into a gas, surrounds the solid part like a cloud. And that can be tens Huge. of thousands of yeah. miles across, but it's not a solid object. It's ridiculous to claim that. So that's, that's where he's getting that from. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, and the, getting back to the tetrahedron thing, you know, basically what this guy was doing was the, the geometry equivalent of numerology. Exactly. You know, pu- putting tetrahedrons inside a, uh, the sphere of whatever Jupiter or the Earth, and then you know w- where the base of the tetrahedron falls on the, the sphere, there's stuff there. Yeah. And that that confirms <laughs> that there this is a real effect. And if you notice when he talks about the great red spot on Jupiter, he said it's near. Yeah, it's near, near this yeah. spot. Yes. And it's like, really? Shouldn't it be right on it? Yeah. 19.47 uh, degrees. Yeah, so yeah. When, you, when you allow for near hits, then, then it becomes all the more likely that you could just find something, anything, to confirm your wacky theory. I believe I've said this on the show before that 90%, actually more than 90% of all murders on Earth happen within a week of the newer full moon. Yeah. <gasps> Don't. No. Yeah, it's, it's right. true. It's amazing. That yeah. is true. That is in fact true. <laughs> what oh, are the odds? My gosh, one hundred percent are the odds. One hundred percent. Well, let's move on. We're going to do a name not logical fallacy. I mail- I sent you guys all this uh, PDF of an interview. Uh, Simon Turnbull is doing the interview of um, Victor Zamet. You guys know who Victor? Well, Victor and Wendy Zamet. I guess a husband and wife team. The name of the interview is Skeptical of Skeptics. Whoa, that's an original one. Ouch, yeah, that hurts. Never heard that one before. Zing. <laughs> this is, you know, this is a, you could just plumb this for name that logical fallacy. I mean, there's probably and we will. 30 or 40 instances of fallacies in this, uh, in this interview. But a lot of, a lot of all the, it's a lot of straw men, a lot of the same kind of things that we hear. What, what I find interesting is I've noticed over the last couple of years that the, the quote unquote other side, 
people who are promoting things like an afterlife, which is what he is, or ESP or homeopathy or whatever, maybe it's because of the internet and they're reading what we're writing. They're using a lot of the same language that skeptics use, and they're just trying to turn it around and use it against you know, the people who are being critical or skeptical of their claims. But it's like they don't know how to use the words that they're using. You know what I mean? You can't just turn it around and, be, and suddenly you're scientific and skeptical because you're arguing with this. You know, it's it's kind of like a cargo cult. You can't just build the grass hut and planes will land. <laughs> you know, it doesn't work. That way. <laughs> That's a great analogy. <laughs> So yeah, it, it's a, I've heard it used as a ten dollar word out of a two dollar mouth. A hundred people are going to steal Steve's al- analogy. That's really good. And reverse it. Well, I've built a hut out of palm fronds shaped like the JRF. So now I'm a skeptic. Right. These chuckleheads are offering a million dollars to any skeptic who can prove that the afterlife doesn't exist. Right. Oh That's yeah, prove a per- negative. Thank you. Yeah, prove a negative. Right, and then. Uh, of course, he could never be nailed down to exactly what criteria would have to be met in order to win that. And then, he- right, it's just a sneaky way to get us all to commit suicide. Well, he's right? just, but Steve, as you were alluding to, he just pulls what the skeptics do and say and practice, and just totally turns it, uses it for his own yes. purposes. So here's, let me give you this one uh, sentence. I, Wendy responds to a question by saying, "The main thing is that comes out is that they, the, the skeptics, haven't read anything." And Simon, the interviewer, says, that's part of the problem. They don't really want to look at the evidence. It makes you wonder whether perhaps it scares them. For example, Richard Dawkins, in his book, The God Delusion, lays out a constant barrage of personal beliefs of his own. He's virtually saying that his beliefs are better than anyone else's, but the proof is not there. So how many times have we heard that? We're afraid of the truth because we're scared of it and we don't look at the actual research. That's, you can't handle the truth. Yeah, that's the opposite of the truth. The skeptics are the only ones who are bothering to look at this research. The real scientists don't bother because they know offhand that it's crap. It's so, it smells so much like crap, it's not even worth a, a second look. But but we will actually take the time to dissect what they they put forward as research because there's a there's a lesson to be learned there. So it's it's absolutely wrong. They also another part of the interview um, characterizes skeptics as being secret believers, like we secretly really believe, but but we can't uh, we can't admit it to ourselves, you know, because we're oh too scared boy. by the implications. Please. Oh my so God, that's all yeah. ad hominem nonsense. So we don't look at the evidence according to them. The evidence is overwhelming, and if we just looked at it, we would see that it proves their position. So what's the big evidence that he has that that is uh, supports the afterlife? Wendy says, the skull experiments are absolutely stunning. There's a new video out about the experiments. I think they're calling it afterlife science. People interested can Google it on the Internet, and Simon follows up, is this where they are talking about the new energy approach? People in Australia, such as materialization medium David Thompson, are developing an approach that goes beyond ectoplasm. Well, that's great. So you guys familiar Whoa. with the skull experiments? Isn't that a chewing tobacco? <laughs> <laughs> so this is a perfect example. They say we don't look at the evidence, and if we did, it would be compelling. And then they go, what, so what's your big evidence? And it's this utter pile of crap. <laughs> The, the Actually, the best single reference I found about the skull experiments on the web was the transcript of the uh, Skeptoid episode on it by, by Brian Dunning. He did a good job of bringing it all together. Basically, the experiments was a five-year observation 
by researchers, scare quotes, from the Society for Psychical Research, right? So they're, they're believers going in uh, with a number so, of mediums. So it's basically the mediums in a dark room doing parlor tricks. And the key is that the mediums were allowed to, to do it in their own place, in their own home. They were allowed to control all of the variables. They were allowed to put restrictions on the investigation. So they did not allow any video. They did not allow any, uh, any cameras that could see in the dark. And they chose the mechanisms to validate what they were doing. So they said, we'll wear wristbands like the, the, uh, Power fl- fl- no, the fluorescent wristbands. So you could see our hands, right? What could, what could possibly go wrong? Yeah. So that's not an experiment. It's not an experiment when you don't control any variable. When you're basically letting magicians con- you know, run the stage. And you know, Brian made a good analogy to you know, if you're sitting in the audience of a Penn & Teller show, you know, of course you're not going to see the deception because the whole thing is designed so that you can't see it. And that's not an experiment. You're an audience member at that, part, at that point, not a researcher. That was the stunning evidence that we are afraid to look at when, in fact, we you know, totally examined it and, and blew it out of the water. Steve, why would they have to wear glowing wristbands if these people are considering, them, considering themselves researchers and they're trying to do legitimate research? Why have any kind of anti, you know, we're committing a scam safeties put in place? To create an air of legitimacy. Yeah, I mean, the whole point, like, uh, the Society for Psychical Research has teamed up with actual scientists like Richard Wiseman and Susan Blackmore in order to um, supposedly scientifically test these things. And that does include things we've seen, you know, Randy and and other researchers step in and and put in these these safeguards in place of, um, putting safeguards in place to to prevent um, scamming, basically. And so, yeah, they, they, what they end up doing is they, they do the very least that they can and they, they still manage to leave enough holes to, to get like some sort of result that they can trump. And when they're rightfully criticized for all of the ways that they, they failed, um, in terms of safeguarding against fraud, they, they just ignore it. Mm-hmm. And 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 they just continue trumping like oh Richard Wiseman works with us and therefore we're okay. Um, so yeah, they, they they but but they make these like very vague attempts at, at science in the hopes that it'll shut up the skeptics. Uh, unfortunately for them, it doesn't. And when it doesn't, then they lie about what our position. Right. So yeah. So it's it's basically all we just don't want to. It's believe. a straw man because they're basically just lying about what we say and ignoring what we actually have written and what we do say. And they just – I don't know why. They just, it's just the culture, this meme that's in the true believer culture or subculture that they think that anyone who doesn't believe them is scared of the truth. Please get over yourself. You know, how about <laughs> Steve. Look, addressing our actual points? But Steve, you're asking for rationality and logic from people who have never even visited it before. Yeah. So it's it's kind of you know what you're asking for is almost literally impossible. If these people think that putting a bunch of uh, psychics into a dark room is going to prove their point, then of course they're going to say yeah, yeah. that skeptics are afraid or whatever because yes, they're not basing oh, any of their conclusions on anything that's even approaching reality. Phil, don't be a dick. <laughs> I've heard that from everybody. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
yes, I would, I would hate for there to be evidence of an afterlife. That would be awful. Yeah. <laughs> Hello? Awful. <laughs> what, what good could possibly come of that? Oh, Phil, Phil are you a secret believer? Uh, She's angry. I, She's I agree angry with what God. Phil said, though. The idea being the the uh, sorry, I'll start that over again. I agree with Phil, though. The idea being that you can't reason someone out of a position they didn't reason yeah, themselves course. into in the first place, right? So, of course. whatever. Like, I'm, I'm with you guys. Like, I, I don't think that they'll ever be able to truly get there. Or at least the vast majority of them. Good luck. Have fun. Do what you got to do. Just leave us the hell alone. <laughs> well, God well, damn it. Hope you know we can always hope that that some fraction of, of the folks who believe in this stuff will wander away from it and, and find reality. I mean, there's always sort of, you know, Julia Sweeney's story of, of going yeah. from one sort of supernatural belief to another before she finally stumbled on, onto skepticism. But, uh, in, in the most part, these people aren't going to do that. And I, and it's, it's going to be much harder when they've devoted their lives to it. And of course they're making a ton of money doing it too. Well, not the Zamets. I mean, they're not going to depart from it, but we're, that's not who we, who we're going after. We're, right. We're it's our audience. The audience, right. And we get emails from people all the time who, who said that they were believers of one stripe or another. Yeah. And, you know, eventually, you know, the, the logic sinks in. What, one more example of trying to sound like a skeptic. Simon, the interviewer writes, what you're doing is forcing them to step back and look at what they're saying. Again, referring to skeptics. Of course, you can't really force a true disbeliever into <laughs> becoming a believer, particularly if they're not willing to look at the evidence. A true disbeliever. That's the first time I saw that term basically turning that's quite the, funny. the true believer phrase around. Well, it's pretty ironic because typically disbelieving is the way to find the truth. Right. Doubt. Systematic doubt. That's what science is. Well, let's go on to science or fiction. <laughs> It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fake, and then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. We have an expanded panel of skeptics this week, so we'll see how you guys do. You saying I'm fat? Is everyone ready? That's <laughs> uh, you, yeah. You know how to read Bring between it. the lines, Phil. Item number one. Scientists have developed a new type of glass that has greater toughness and strength than any known material. Item number two, scientists have developed a camera that is able not only to image otherwise invisible bloodstains, but also discriminate among the major, i.e. ABO, blood types. And item number three, in a series of studies, researchers find that subjects prefer skin color darkened by eating fruits and vegetables to skin darkened by tanning. Rebecca, go first. I'm a bit at a loss because I... Drunk. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> of course I was drunk at the time. Um, a glass that has greater toughness and strength than any known material. That makes sense to me. I can imagine that that's in line with previous research that I have heard about. Although I have not heard this news story I, I don't see why that would not necessarily be possible. A camera that can image blood stains and discriminate amongst the major blood types. Now, I've seen this on CSI, uh, CSI Law and De Order, Dexter. Bones, Dexter, and Lie to Me. My Little Pony. <laughs> My Little, it was on that. CSI, My Little where Pony. Apple Blossom. 
But yeah, Minty, the for- look the at the blood stains. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Where Apple Boss Blossom murdered Princess Sparkles. Um so yeah, that makes sense. But of course the because I immediately think of CSI and things like that, I'm I, I'm tempted to say that that's the fake one because those those shows are just terrible and they're they're nowhere near reality in so many ways. Which brings us to that subjects prefer skin color darkened by eating fruits and vegetables to skin darkened by tanning. Steve, I don't know if you can help me out here, but is it subjects preferring that skin color in other subjects or in themselves? In other subjects, I'll give you that. So they're looking at pictures of people with different skin tones and they're saying which ones looks better to them, basically. Really? That's really interesting. Like, I can imagine that those skin tones would be slightly different. So I can see how that could happen. Like, eating, I don't know, carrots would make you oranger, orangier, I suppose. Did um, they show a picture of John Boehner? <laughs> or, and Snooky? It's just John Boehner. <laughs> yeah, Snooky, yeah. <laughs> um, so because, I mean, I'm not very familiar with, with, any of these, I'm going to have to go with the one that triggered my this is something fake off of CSI detector, which is the idea that there's a camera that can distinguish between the major blood types. I think that that must be fiction, I guess. Okay, Bob. Let's see. The new type of glass, greater toughness than any known material. Um, I'm having a hard time swallowing that. Uh, toughness? Well, that's kind of ambiguous. What do you mean by toughness? But str- uh, stronger than any any no material, wow, I'm having trouble swallowing that. The imaging one, I could totally see. Um, discriminating among the blood types, that's pretty cool. But, I mean, so what? It's a camera that could detect, what, the the the, uh, the proteins and other substances on, on the red blood cells. Yeah, what, that, that, should, that sounds totally feasible. Let's see, the third one. Yeah, um, I, could, I could see how fruits and vegetables would, would give a, uh, an aesthetic tint to the skin. I mean... Uh, it would make sense from an evolutionary perspective as well uh, that uh, you know people that had a good, re- well-rounded diet would be more appealing. Yeah, and, and that, I don't know what it is. It in fruits and vegetables, carotenoids, or something in there that could that could that, that could actually darken the skin. Um, that one, so that one kind of makes sense to me too. But um, I know they're always making advances with these with this with glass and making it stronger. But that's quite an extraordinary claim here. Any known material, I mean, what would be stronger than than diamond? I mean. Yeah, I guess I can't buy that one, so I'm going to say that one is fiction. Damn it. Okay, Evan? <laughs> um, yeah, the, uh, I, Bob, I was also wondering, what what is toughness? You know, I know there's a hardness scale for things. I never really heard of a toughness scale, so I'm not really sure that that's a measurement, official measurement of any kind. Maybe it is. And I, Yeah, diamonds being the hardest stuff. Although, aren't there some alloys they've created that are even harder than diamonds? Yeah, I think um, so. Yeah. So I, I'm having a hard time. Uh, believing that one too, uh, although I'm also having a hard time about this bloodstain one. I don't. I mean, the bloodstain, yes, but the blood types, really. Um, I I did not know that you could look because I imagine this is that all this camera is doing, imaging it, or is it? It has a sensor built in or something to detect the the, the protein structure. I don't. I don't quite get that one, so I'm a little hung up on that one. The skin color one, sure, that's very subjective so i think that one's true i'll go with the uh glass uh 
I think that one's fiction. But I won't be surprised if the blood one turns out to be fiction. Oh, you always got to hedge your bets on Evan. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, I do. It's my own personal safety net. All right, Jay. <laughs> you make a good psychic. <laughs> uh, the item about the the glass, they came out with a new glass that's tougher than any known material. Um, by coincidence, I was reading recently about the glass that's used in the iPhone, and it's manufactured by Corning. And that stuff is called Gorilla Glass. You guys know about how tough this is? I didn't uh, think the I know that I've dropped my glass. iPhone a million times in toilets and barroom floors and it's never broken. Yeah, people are saying like it's tougher than helicopter glass, which is ridiculously tough. Um, but from what I've read about it, um, Gorilla Glass is like incredibly, you know, resilient and um a thing that that I read on the internet said something along the lines of like dropping a 3 pound all on on the glass won't shatter it from th- you know or or what was it I can't remember the 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 thing but basically a you know really big you know steel ball was dropped on the glass from a, from a, you know a few feet and it didn't crack it so I know that incredibly tough glass exists and we're pretty much most of us are carrying it in our pockets right now uh, but I I agree with everyone else I I just don't think that uh, any known material I find that very hard to believe. Huh. The next two, uh, to go over them very quickly, yeah, I, I think that the blood type thing, sure, I could totally see that advancement with the camera being able to read that, that new data. And the, the research about skin color, I've, I'd never really heard about food changing your color, um, your skin color, but I think it's ke- chemically possible. So I, therefore, I think, sure, there might be a combination of foods that could potentially change certain type of people's skin tones if they have it a different color. You haven't seen the documentary Fine. about Willy Wonka? No. Hey, Violet, Andy. you're turning Violet, Violet. <laughs> so anyway, uh, the, the one about the glass, I, I, even though uh, I totally agree that there is incredibly strong glass out there, it's not the, the toughest material. Okay, Phil. A. One, that's it? One. No. <laughs> no, I can, I can pretty quickly. Uh, I agree that number three is subjective, and uh, I didn't even know fruits and vegetables could darken your skin enough that people could tell, but... Uh, tanning maybe a slightly <laughs> different glow, so that that doesn't sound too ridiculous. The second one, as someone who has worked with uh, cameras and all that kind of thing, uh, the 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 different blood types. It's a different protein structure, isn't it, Steve? That's correct. Okay, so uh, it's wow. possible that they reflect or refract light different differently, diffract light differently, and so a narrow band filter or a prism or something like that inside the camera might be able to distinguish between them just by taking a picture of it. So that doesn't uh, throw me too much. Uh, and as soon as I read these, I thought, glass stronger than any known material. Uh, I won't make the obvious Chuck Norris joke because he gives me the creeps. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, neutronium? Come on! So <laughs> I, I know, I, I did hear that there was a new type of glass developed. That's all I heard about it. Uh, but I have a hard time believing that any kind of amorphous crystalline st- or non-crystalline structure like that can be tougher than any known material. So I'm going with number one. Big science okay. words. I like it. Man. So you, Rebecca's all out uh, there it's just by me. her lonesome. It's just yeah, me. That's but right. you all agree. That means you'll get all the glory, Rebecca. For number all three in a series right. of studies. <laughs> looking forward to that. In a series of studies, researchers find that subjects prefer skin color darkened by eating fruits and vegetables to skin darkened by tanning. And that one is science wouldn't have been nice if Woo-hoo. that were the fiction um <laughs> but bob i think but it you, wasn't you, you were the the uh closest in your in your 
your description. It is from carotenoids, from the fruits and Woo-hoo. vegetables, specifically carrots. Hey, I was close. I said carrots. Oh, you're right. You're just, be- Car- you're just being carotenoid. Carrots and, <laughs> and tomatoes and other things. You're right. But also Bob mentioned <laughs> evolution, and, and this was actually published in an evolution journal. Uh, uh, and well, I, I think that that's a bold step, and I didn't want to yeah, make that, that <laughs> jump. You, okay, you were, good. I don't you were all right, you. but I thought Bob had hit those <laughs> themes. <laughs> Published in Evolution and Human <laughs> Behavior. And they, what they did was they took uh, pictures of people, and, and of uh, Caucasians specifically, and then they tinted their skin to, to mimic the effects of either carotenoid coloration or melanin color, uh, colorization, darkening. And they found that people thought that the, the carotenoid gave people a healthier and more appealing color or glow. Oh, know. boy. So, Steve, is it, is it true, though, that that's more of kind of like the Jersey Shore look or what? <laughs> Only oh. if you push it to the extreme. I mean, if you really had a lot of carrots, you can look really yellow, almost orange. I mean, that is true. But, um, you know, just having fruits and vegetables in your diet will give you a little bit of a yellow tint to your skin, and that does make it seem a little darker and, and healthier. But um, can they develop a camera which can tell the difference between skin color through very tough glass? There you yeah. go. So, oh, boy. Which one do you want me to do next? The Rebecca's. second one. Do Rebecca's. Okay. Let's do number two. <laughs> you guys are yeah, Let's get rid of Rebecca. Scientists have developed oh, a camera God. that is able to not only image otherwise invisible blood stains, but also discriminate among the major ABO blood types. Rebecca's all by herself thinking this one is the fiction. The rest of you guys think this one is science. And this one is... The fiction. Oh, yes. Rebecca. What? Congratulations. No way. Rebecca. Yeah. See, all, Suck it. All the glue. <laughs> what? I, I came in a close second, by the way. No way. Steve, wait. Whoa. So we'll get there, Whoa. Jay. We'll get there. Get the, real, the real story is that scientists <laughs> developed a camera, and it is being you know, sold as a CSI tool you know, in the headlines. That can visualize stains, you know, and either blood or coffee or cola or you know, soda or bleach or whatever that would be otherwise not visible to the naked eye. And the process they use involves um, actually shining infrared light and t- taking multiple images with different filters, you know, filtering out certain wave le- wavelengths. And using that to be able to see exactly where um, the stain is, for example. The advantage here. Now, I know you guys have all seen, you mentioned all the shows, you know, Dexter and CSI, where they spray that stuff on it. That's luminol, and it makes blood show up. But there's some, there's some uh, limitations to that. It, one thing is it dilutes the blood. Um, so if you have a very small amount, you could actually smear the blood that's remaining or actually dilute it to the point where it's not detectable. It, it can actually, it's a, it's a somewhat invasive procedure, so it actually can alter the blood stain a little bit. This would be a completely non-invasive way of imaging the blood stain and therefore could be very useful in a CSI, you know, crime scene investigation scenario. But the ABO stuff I made up entirely. Now, you're all wondering about this glass, right? Well, now, hang on a sec, because I think I could invent a camera that could tell the difference between those proteins. Maybe, but nobody has, so that's why it's fiction. You could make a mint. So, the key, this was tricky. And I, I bet, was, you, bet your ass it was. It was tricky, and uh, I was okay with that because you swept me last week, so I figured I could take it up a notch. The, I read this goddamn article. Yeah, right. You didn't read it close <laughs> enough. The key Bastard. is... The key you is, should have done what I did and not read anything. 
I, and I, I had to be careful how I worded this. It's greater toughness and strength. And yes, those have very specific definitions. And the key is that it's both. Uh... I couldn't find in the time that I had, and it wasn't in the articles that I was reading, whether it's both tougher and stronger or if it only has the greatest combination of the two. It definitely has the greatest combination of strength and toughness. It doesn't mean it's necessarily tougher than the toughest material or stronger than the stronger material, but its combination of toughness yeah, and, strengthness and strength is is greater than anything else. So either way, you're wrong. You said greater. Yeah. And I'm reading all these things on the web right now, and they all say as tough as steel. They're not saying greater. That's not what the article I have said. The reference I I have says they do make the steel analogy, and they say, in fact, they say, in fact, uh, let me read you the the, uh, quote, the article that I have. Mm-hmm, but the key please. so I'll, I'll I'll explain what toughness and strength is. And again, I read that too, and I said I, I said really? Then any uh, Steve, you better get to it, or we're going to show you toughness and strength. Any known material, uh, but that's what it's that's what it said. And when I read the the description, then it made sense. So so here's the definition of strength. So strength measures the resistance to of a material to failure given an applied strength. So like if you have mm. a load on the material, what will make it break? Whereas uh, toughness is the resistance to like cracking or spreading of a crack. Uh, oh, the shit. problem is that an amorphous material could be very strong, but it's not very tough because there's no resistance to the cracking. And and crystalline structures can be can be very tough, but they're not very strong. They could be brittle. So things that you think of like diamonds, which are hard, actually can be brittle. So this is something which is simultaneously tough and strong. That's the key, and that's what that's what it has greater than anything else is the combination. So to to describe the property better, I think Steve, from what my reading of the Gorilla Glass stuff is, um, is that it's it can actually flex better than steel. It's it's it is flexible, right? Um, because when and what they did was they they incorporated the metal palladium. Uh, into palladium. Palladium. They incorporate the metal there. palladium into the, into the structure of the glass, and they have to cool it very quickly. They also, the article also said that in this process, they need to include at least like five other alloys so that, um, or substances, so that the uh, crystals cannot quickly form because I guess they're competing to form many different kinds of crystals. So if you have that and you cool it quickly, you get this amorphous structure rather than a crystalline structure. But the palladium provides the toughness because when the the forces are distributed in such a way that it will flex the material rather than than propagating a crack. Um, so it, it gives it – and again, you could actually see – a, a chart of like strength on the x-axis and toughness on the y-axis, and you can look at different materials, and n- nothing has really high both, right? So except this material now is all by itself in that corner with high strength and toughness. So in other words, I win. Yes. Here's how it's going to go, mm-hmm. Steve. All right, first of all, I don't want to take anything away from Rebecca. I mean, she's oh, I can't. smart. You couldn't if, if you wanted to. What I'm saying is, you know, Rebecca did right now win, and she's very intelligent. You know, it's, thank you. She's the queen. Lucky. But this is how it's going to go for the rest of us, including yeah. Phil. 
We're gonna we're gonna first hope hopefully somebody that listens to the show could write in that knows this material much better than we do that could help us either find the truth or the rest of us will do research and we're one this week is... from today. Hold on, let me finish. One week from today, <laughs> we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna bring up this topic again and see if Steve was actually correct. And if he wasn't, here's the quote: "Glass, if he wasn't, <laughs> a new type of damage tolerant metallic glass demonstrating a strength and toughness beyond that of any known material." That's the first line in the sentence. And this is exactly, exactly like the case of the creationist teacher who you were all complaining about had too many opportunities to protest his case. You guys have lost. And you need to just accept that the science science is not on your side and it's not worth dragging it out. Steve, was this paper published in The Lancet by any chance? (laughs) (laughs) This is from the Berkeley Lab, the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory. Right, Berkeley, oh, not the Berkeley. not the music Berkeley, the Berserkly. Yeah, no. they got no street cred. <laughs> all all kidding aside, guys. All kidding aside, I would love if a chemical engineer that knows about this could call call us. You know, yeah, say, or, listen, yeah, that's, true. that's true, and it's certainly not uncommon because I'm pulling news items that are hours old and doing the best I can to present what's being said. And oftentimes, when the dust settles, you know, we get we get responses over the course of the week that says, "Well, you know, when people act, when scientists who actually know what they're talking about were reading this, that they were interpreting it a different way, and that's fine. And if there's any significant update, I'm happy to provide that next week. But this is what this the report." Report. And this is actually, this is not a press release, this is actually from the Berkeley Lab. This is a description of what it says. It made sense when I read through the whole thing and read the definition of strength and toughness. So I thought it, would, it met my threshold for inclusion as a science or fiction item. But, so congratulations to me. So congratulations, Rebecca. Uh, we have a few very important announcements coming up. But first, So this quote was sent in by Dex. A quote from Jay. <laughs> Reality has been around since long before you showed up. Don't go calling it nasty names like bizarre or incredible. The universe was propagating complex amplitudes through configuration space for 10 billion years before life ever emerged on Earth. Quantum physics is not weird. You are weird. Uh, It's harsh. Eliezer Yukowski! Eliezer (laughs) Yukowski. Is that through your didgeridoo, Jay? (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to reveal my secrets. (laughs) A few uh, a few important announcements. First, Richard Saunders requested that I uh, let people know that the Skeptic Zone now has an email newsletter. So if you would like to receive, I think it's weekly, a weekly newsletter through the email from the Skeptic Zone, you can visit www.skepticzone.tv and you can subscribe there. Um, also, Nexus registration is now open. So Yay. you can go to, go to the Nexus uh, Con website and you'll see a big button you know, to register here. This is the conference previously known as the SGU Live Show. Yes, it used to be the, SG, the local <laughs> SGU Live Show, which has morphed into the Northeastern Conference on Science and Skepticism, or Nexus for short. And who's our keynote speaker this year? Some guy. Is it me? The thing. Isn't, it, isn't this it's whole me, thing just, just William Shatner chopping wood? <laughs> oh, that's the Snook- other Nexus. Sorry. I wish. What about Snooky? <laughs> I believe that the Bad Astronomer is going to be our keynote oh, this year. I've heard of him. Hey, hey, hey. I can dress He's like the- Snooky for the talk. <laughs> that's awesome, guys. He's Come the on. badass astronomer. The badass astronomer. <laughs> All um, I need to do is figure out what I'm going to talk about. <laughs> that's easy. Yep. So we have uh, coming Phil Plate, of course, Massimo Pigliucci, 
John Rennie, uh, John Allen Paulos, uh, Todd Robbins, Eugenie Scott, mm. Carl Zimmer, Daniel Kahneman. Did I say George Trab? Uh, Jennifer Michael no. Hecht, Thomas Gilovich. Rob. I'm actually excited to see this guy. Have you guys read his book? <laughs> you know, I think it's called How We Know no. What Isn't So. Yeah, yeah, I've got that I'll book right here. That. Yeah, it's, it's a, a book. seminal book, in my opinion, in understanding the psychology really? of belief. Yeah, I love it's a it. good book. Oh, I gotta yeah, read yeah. it. Yeah, gotta read it. And, you know, so I'm excited to see him at the uh, at the conference. Uh, Hal Bidlack, Brooke Allen, Dan Gardner, who we interviewed recently. So it's quite the lineup. There's there may be some other editions coming, but just the list as it is right now is awesome. Also, if you are a member of the Ness of the New England Skeptical Society, then email us at uh, snovella at theskepticsguide.org, and I will send you a special code to get your membership discount. Uh, we, do a, awesome. we do have a list of everybody, but I don't have everybody's email, so it's easier just email me if you want the code. And when you decode it, it says, be sure to drink your Ovaltine. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> nice. Brought to you by... <laughs> Well, Phil, thanks for joining us this week. Thanks, Phil. Thanks, Phil. Hey, this was you. awesome, as always. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Hey, Phil. Thank you, everyone else. Pleasure, as Thank always. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, everyone Good else. Good episode. Too. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by the New England Skeptical Society in association with the James Randi Educational Foundation and Skeptic.org. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. For questions, suggestions, and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website or send an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by voting for us on Dig or leaving us a review on iTunes. You can find links to these sites and others through our homepage. Theorem is produced by Kinetto and is used with permission. Problem.